The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Did you know that we've built more microgrids in the U.S. than anyone else? These self-contained electrical networks allow you to generate your own electricity on-site and use it when you need it most. Keep your power on during a grid outage. Store electricity and sell it back during peak demand times. Integrate with renewables such as wind and solar. With a microgrid, you get energy control on your terms. See what's possible at www.se.com backslash US backslash microgrid. The energy transition in shipping is going to be potentially decades longer than other industries that evolve a lot quicker. It's not really due to lack of the people that are focused on it or even the money that's being invested into the evolution of the industry. It really has to do with sort of the renewal rates, if you will, like how quickly things get rebuilt. This is The Interchange Recharged. I'm David Van Miller. The race to decarbonize is well underway. Every day I see new initiatives and technologies which could solve some of the biggest challenges we face in getting to net zero. It's a learning curve for me, but I'm all in and I hope you are too. So join me as I navigate through the world of clean technology and together we can learn something new on every episode of the podcast. As the world rushes to reach net zero emissions by 2050, we take a deep dive into the industries working towards making that switch. Here on the Interchange Recharged, we've tackled technologies that are helping the energy transition on land with Quay's Energy and Watt Time, and in the air with some sustainable aviation companies like Boom Supersonic and Zero Avia. Now we're casting a wider net and looking at sustainability at sea. On this episode, I'm joined by Pace Rally co-founder and CEO at Switch Maritime. Switch Maritime is building the first fleet of zero emissions vessels in North America. Their first project at the Sea Change is a zero emissions ferry powered by hydrogen fuel cells and batteries. Listen in as Pace takes us through his journey as a climate tech investor and what led him to focus on hard to decarbonize sectors like Maritime. Pace, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, David. So we've actually had a couple of episodes on aviation and the energy transition, and it's really interesting to have a discussion on what's going on with decarbonization in the maritime space. Uh, So why don't you tell us a little bit about Switch Maritime, how you started, what your plans are? Absolutely. We have been working on decarbonizing shipping, uh, the shipping industry, since 2012. Pretty big industry to take on and starts with just sort of the early first mover projects. And with Switch Maritime, we are building the first fleet of zero emissions vessels. So we've been working over the past 10 years on incrementally decarbonizing ships, getting them off of heavy fuel oil, onto ultra low sulfur diesel, onto liquefied natural gas, renewable natural gas, hybrid electric, fully electric. And with Switch Maritime, we're really looking to sort of jump the curve and go straight to a zero carbon vessel. Just built the first hydrogen fuel cell vessel. Uh, it's a ferry called the Sea Change. And, and where's the sea change right now? It's currently at the shipyard uh, where it was completed up in Bellingham, Washington. And we're looking to transport it down to San Francisco Bay for operation. So tell us a little bit about sea change. I mean, how did this come about? How did it evolve? I was uh, living in Brooklyn at the time and riding the ferry to Manhattan, looking at the ferries that I was riding myself and seeing the smoke come out the stack. I've been working on really big ships and uh, just figured, hey, if we can work on big ships, we might as well start working on these small ones as well. 
And we started working with a company out in California that was developing a hydrogen fuel cell powertrain technology and built a project starting in San Francisco and then brought it up to Washington. Got it through the pandemic by <laughs> skin of our teeth and uh, have been able to get it permitted and delivered. And now it uh, runs beautifully on, on hydrogen fuel cell with uh, the only emissions is water vapor. And how, how far can the sea change go? What's the distance on, on the current technology? Yeah, so it's a, a smaller ferry. You decide to start small with the first of its kind. It can go about 300 nautical miles on one fueling. So that's pretty good for a ferry. The technology will scale pretty nicely to some bigger ferries, 150 passenger, 350 passenger. And then we can start looking at you know, larger vessel types, tugs and ocean going ships. And what, what do you see going on in the space right now as it relates to maritime with technology similar to Switch? It's pretty fascinating how much is being developed at the moment. We're very much in a uh, VHS versus beta sort of stage where no one really knows what the silver bullet solution is going to be. And more likely, it's just going to be a lot of different solutions for the shipping industry. Um, so whether that's hydrogen fuel cell or battery electric or other hydrogen-based fuels such as uh, green methanol or green ammonia, a lot of different solutions out there that are being developed. And that's really sort of gained a lot of traction over the past five years. Since we started, it was very sort of early days. It's, it's pretty exciting. And the sea change, is that... I mean, is that ready to go? You said it's in the shipyard, going to San Francisco Bay. I mean, is there any additional testing that needs to happen or is it ready to, to go in service right when it arrives? With ships in the U.S., we're under the, the jurisdiction of the U.S. Coast Guard. So as we are getting delivered from the shipyard, we have to do a sea trials and process of permitting with the U.S. Coast Guard to be delivered as a vessel. Because it's a passenger vessel, it's going to be operating in a particular port in the U.S., once we get into that port that we're going to be operating, we have to go through another layer of permitting with the, the local office that oversees that particular port. So we've completed our sea trials and our permitting up in the Puget Sound. And then as we get down to San Francisco, we'll be going through uh, what's called a new to zone permitting stage. And then we can start operating and, and fueling with hydrogen. So really exciting. We're, we're very close. It works well. And the Coast Guard's super supportive. So so when do you expect it to be fully in service in the Bay? We're shooting for Q4 of this year. Okay. So so really soon. Yeah. Do you expect to uh, expand that? I mean, what what's the vision kind of for like the next step after this this gets up and running and it's successful? What do you think is next for Switch Maritime? Just an expansion of the fleet? Yeah, I think there's a lot we can do. We've been hyper-focused on just getting the first one done. Um, hard to really expand the fleet before you've shown that the number one is in service and operational. There's a lot of eyes on this project, not just here in the US, but globally. There are not a lot of projects out there yet with 100% uh, hydrogen fuel cell powered ships. Um, so this will be the first one that uh, really is going to, I think, be a milestone for the industry. And the nice thing is this technology really scales um, so that we could see it take larger form with the larger asset types. But I think for us, you know, just getting this up and running and then looking at the the ferry fleet in the U.S. as a, as a starting point. I mean, there's a fairly large ferry fleet here, um, almost a thousand ferries that are average age um, 30 plus years old. So really big need for renewal in that fleet. And what we'd like to see is not uh, that fleet being renewed with 
diesel powered boats that are going to be putting out diesel emissions for the next 30 years. We'd like to see if we can have uh, zero carbon vessels be the ones that replace those old ones. That's a great target right off the bat. And then uh, we also are working on some larger vessel types as well. So let's talk a little bit about the technology. You'd mentioned that the only byproduct is is water vapor. So how is the technology with the ferry? How does this work? I'll give you the um, sort of, you know, the investor layperson's explanation because we have teams of really smart technical folks that, that could really give the best explanation. Simply put, we're able to store hydrogen on board the ferry and that hydrogen wants to combine with oxygen to create H2O. So the hydrogen fuel cell allows for that hydrogen. Uh, as, the, as those two come together, the, the fuel cell, the membrane in the fuel cell captures the electrons that come out of that process. And so you get the, the output of the electrons, and that's what we send to the battery and to the electric motor that powers the ferry. And then the other output is the water. And in terms of infrastructure, I mean, obviously, you know, with a ferry going back and forth, there's going to be the, the refueling station. I mean, h- how do you anticipate the infrastructure growing? And I mean, how are you getting the hydrogen to fuel the ferry? One of the things I love about hydrogen is that uh, we can produce it in various forms, we can, we can have a very large sort of centralized production of hydrogen, or we can also have decentralized units where we can station the production of the hydrogen actually right next to where we're going to be using it. That's a big thing for hydrogen because, um, as I think I've you know, heard in other interchange interviews with other companies and technologies that are working with hydrogen, trying to get it to where you're using it is a, is a big part of the cost. It's a big part of the infrastructure that needs to be put in place. I believe that we're going to be using a combination of producers, almost like majors, like oil and gas majors. You know, you'll have hydrogen majors. I mean, they're already in existence that are are producing really large volumes and transporting it around. And we might be using that, you know, for example, when we first start fueling this, we're not going to be producing hydrogen right next to the ferry. We're going to be trucking it to the ferry and then pulling it alongside. And and you have a hose that comes over and, and fuels the tanks. As we grow the fleet and as our volumes grow, it might not make sense to try to truck that much hydrogen in just because of the cost from long distances away. We are looking at producing it and there's some projects underway that are um, looking to you know, have electrolysis using renewable power and that'll produce the hydrogen right next to the ferry. So very early days in how the, all the infrastructure is coming together. As we grow the fleet, that's going to allow us to unlock some of the potential. When you really have the volumes to justify the production, then we can decide how we want it produced for our fleets versus right now we're sort of, you know, we're just buying it off the market. It's it's going to be an interesting thing to see evolve over the coming years. There's a number of different options for the manufacturer of hydrogen, you know, having it on site and shipping it, but the whole new infrastructure that would need to be built out. But it really presents a host of opportunities. And like I said, it'll be interesting to see what one actually takes and evolves as the more standard. I mean, there'll probably be a number of different ones around but there'll be one that they gravitate towards as kind of the standard that works the best and is the most cost efficient. Absolutely. I mean, it's the, it's really the most cost efficient is going to be the key for all this. Cause right now it is more expensive. There's some nice incentives that are coming out that are helping bring down that cost. And that's what needs to happen. You know, for us to be able to really put a dent in diesel, you know, it needs to be at parity with, with diesel or cheaper. And the DOE has some goals that are, are very aggressive, uh, bringing hydrogen down to a dollar, a dollar 50. And that really is what needs to happen. And so we'll see how 
how we get there. Again, I don't think that anyone really knows exactly what's going to be the winner in terms of producing the hydrogen that we can use for not just a minuscule fraction of our transportation, but the majority of our transportation. I'm excited about a lot of different projects out there. I don't, I don't take a stance on which one's the best, you know, and then there's other technologies like storage technologies and is it moved through old gas pipelines? Is it transported by truck or is it by transported by ship? That script has yet to be written. You mentioned with with all the various technologies that are out there, hydrogen clearly is going to be a piece of the energy transition. I mean, I think that there's a lot of things that have focused on hydrogen and its benefits, not only from a production standpoint, but the, just the carbon emission side of things. Uh, where do you see just hydrogen in general? Because there's a lot of discussion, like you had said, around transportation, around storage. Um, I mean, do you see hydrogen continue to evolve as really being a key piece of the energy transition? Because like I said, we, we've talked about hydrogen and aviation, now kind of a, a lesser spoken about maritime, but I know that there's a lot of work going on there. It just doesn't necessarily get the publicity uh, that some of the other technologies do. But in general, how do you feel about hydrogen going forward? And really, why was that when you were sitting in New York Bay uh, and you were looking at the smoke coming out? I mean, why was it hydrogen that kind of grabbed your attention as the technology to focus on? My mission right off the bat was to was to jump to a zero carbon propulsion right away. And so hydrogen was, you know, a fuel used by technologies that could produce heavy horsepower levels with with zero carbon and using technology that had existed already in the last, you know, in the last 10 years. I mean, hydrogen's been around a long time. And so there was technologies such as hydrogen fuel cell, you know, tanks that have been used in other applications, other transportation modes. And so to me, that sort of met my criteria. I was like, okay, hey, I, I can build this, this zero carbon ship now. If I try to use some of the other fuels that are expected to be able to decarbonize ships, and I think they will, they're just not quite there yet where I could get zero carbon right off the bat. And so that's what drew me to hydrogen. And those other fuels will get there, will play a role. There's still carbon that comes out of a lot of those processes. Um, you know, those still are massive steps in the direction of decarbonization, but they didn't meet my zero carbon criteria right off the bat. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that that's applicable to the broader landscape of the energy transition is not one silver bullet. I do think hydrogen is going to play a key piece. Uh, I think you'll see some technologies evolve uh, more than others to winners and losers, but I think overall there's going to be a number of different facets to the decarbonization effort, and it's going to be a broad array of different things that are impacting the goals. Absolutely. And I think, and I think hydrogen-based fuels, other hydrogen-based fuels, um, such as methanol and ammonia, again, they all have their pros and cons, but, you know, with one, you're able, you know, methanol, for example, we can, we can solve a really large storage problem we have with pure hydrogen and you're able to store it at ambient temperature and pressure um, versus if we were to try to store really large volumes of hydrogen, for example, for a container ship that's going from you know Asia to the to the west coast of the U.S., you have to have crazy amounts of cryogenic equipment to keep it at a very very low temperature, and uh, it just gets more and more expensive and and more and more cumbersome. Whereas methanol, for example, is a another compound that includes hydrogen. You can store it much easier. And then you can reform it on board into hydrogen. So when it's being used in the hydrogen fuel cell, it's in pure hydrogen form. 
So, you know, I think there's also sort of a blend that could happen where you're, you know, you're using one form for storage and another form for how it's being used in a fuel cell to produce electricity. It sounds complex because you're going from methanol to hydrogen electricity and then finally into the motor. But we have that technology now to manage that process. And, uh, and so it's really about being able to get that technology down to a price point that makes sense and also getting the fuels down to a price point and sort of a, a volume and liquidity that we can trade it just like we would trade diesel. And how does IMO factor into kind of your business and your plans going forward? IMO has been a really big driver of some very large corporate incumbents in the shipping industry, right? So the technologies being in existence alone was not enough. You know, we've, we've seen these developments since we started 10 years ago where we could present concepts and present technologies to companies that they could use to decarbonize their fleets. Uh, they weren't doing it. <laughs> and it wasn't something that they were going to do on their own. They really needed um, sort of an outside driving force. IMO, International Maritime Organization, uh, represents essentially the industry uh, self-regulating. And so because everyone, you know, because the industry largely lives out in the ocean where it's not under one national jurisdiction, um, it's sort of the, you know, wild west out there, they they have to regulate themselves. And so that that agency, that body, you know, all, all the different countries that participate and ship owners that participate, it's it's effective. I must say that I was unsure about how effective it could be. We started in 2012 when the first sort of step of um, what's called ECA uh, emissions control areas, which was 200 nautical miles off the coast of North America and Northern Europe, they were starting to just begin with emissions regulations related to sulfur. And that was just for those areas. You know, it did work. It made it had an impact on the on the companies that were operating in those particular areas. And then IMO just became, you know, I guess the industry really just became more aggressive in, in realizing that they needed to decarbonize or else they wouldn't be able to operate as as they had. That's the important thing, right? Let's make sure we're able to operate the way we have for the past hundred years. And if that means that we need to be able to um, do what we do in a low carbon economy, then let's figure out how to do that. And so I was very impressed with how the, the IMO sort of over the past 10 years have stepped up those emissions regulations. So got more aggressive with sulfur, made it from just those ECAs to the whole global, it was a global regulation. And then they started working on carbon. And the carbon targets are really far out. I mean, they're, you know, 2050, 2040, 2030. So a lot of folks don't even, you know, especially if you're in tech, you think of, you don't think of uh, those are dog ears for you. So they seem very far out, but to a ship owner, that actually means something because if I'm building something that's 30 years from now, that's going to be working 30 years from now, I need to build that asset so that it's future-proof, so that it's going to be able to operate 30 years from now. So I have to think really far ahead, okay, how, you know, how can I make sure this ship is going to be um, able to do what it's meant to do and how it's going to earn money? And so just putting out those, those far out targets, I, I think really had an impact. Um, I think this was largely tied also to the Paris climate um, meetings and, and agreements. And I think there was just sort of this groundswell, as we've all seen in a lot of industries and in embracing the energy transition and their shareholders really being concerned with the energy transition, how their companies were going to sort of be sustainable in the long run. So it was a confluence of different factors, but I think the IMO really 
created sort of the catalyst for ship owners to say, hey, I need to have my ship ready to operate in a low carbon economy by 2050. This is what I have to do now. Yeah, I have some uh, friends that are in the the shipping industry uh, maritime, and I know that the sulfur reduction impact from a while back was one that they were real heavily focused on. Just the overall cost in terms of uh, the different fuel versus refurb of the engines, and the, a lot of smaller companies were really having to take a close look at it, uh, not just for the near term, like you said, but for the longer term uh, as well. So what kind of challenges do you see for your business plan going forward, whether it's on the supply chain side, regulatory side, but just as you look at the landscape over the next, call it five years, what are some of the big hurdles that, that you're seeing? Our, our business is based on trying to produce clean fuels and have very large assets use clean fuels. So there's a, there's a big challenge that I often struggle with, with both of those endeavors. They require a lot of capital and it's also construction of infrastructure that takes many years to to finish, um, not only to get to a transaction that's completed, but then many years to actually build the asset that you're talking about. We've been, as I mentioned, since we were, we started, we've been mostly focused on producing clean fuels, investing in projects that produce clean fuels for maritime here in the US. And the biggest challenge we learned through sort of our first chapter was we were waiting for the ship owner to make a decision, helping that ship owner make a decision, then waiting for them to actually make a plan and ushering them through the process where they're constructing an asset that could use a clean fuel. And that's just a very long, long lead period where we have to wait to be able to build something. And so that was one of the reasons why my partners and I decided to look at building our own ship. It was saying, look, we could we could wait for the first company to decide they want to build with hydrogen, but who knows how long that's going to take. So let's just build it ourselves and then we can be our own customer of the fuel. And there's, you know, there's definitely risks to doing that. Um, I'm the type of personality that likes to try to be the first to uh, prove something can work. I've probably learned a lot of lessons that there's a lot of people out there that are very smart that realize that it's good to be number two. And so, you know, but the world needs folks to come out and be number one. So there's a lot of risks that come with it, but I think that once we've sort of proven that it can work, once we've gotten the you know the first sort of stages of the infrastructure in place, um, it'll be much easier for us to scale and much easier for us to raise capital. Methods like tax incentives that we're starting to see come out, ways to get that capital into the production of hydrogen and into the replacement of diesel with hydrogen fuel cells. Um, is going to be key. I, I sort of equate it to solar, right? The huge reason solar is now as cheap is as cheap as it as it is, is because of the of the the tax credits and the ability for really large capital to get behind building these. We can do that with hydrogen, either on the production side of hydrogen or on the replacement of diesel with hydrogen fuel cell propulsion. Then we might see a similar sort of cost down curve that we saw with solar. And that's going to be the big challenge of the day. The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Are you looking for more energy control, but worry about the upfront costs of a microgrid and renewables? We have you covered. Schneider Electric offers energy as a service for customers like you who spend $40,000 or more each month on energy. With energy as a service, you get customized solutions to help you meet goals for sustainability, efficiency, and cost control. 
including a microgrid and adjacent energy infrastructure. We also handle every step of the process and assume financial and operational risks. Upgraded electrical equipment, reduced emissions, predictable long-term pricing. Energy as a Service provides all of this and more. Visit www.se.com backslash US backslash EAAS to find out if Energy as a Service is right for you. And you're right. I mean, the capital available to the energy transition space has increased over the past few years. You know, as as you look at the sea change and your business plan going forward, I mean, where's what's the revenue driver behind all of it? I mean, is it licensing the technology? Is it actually owning your own fleet and maybe you know expanding into longer haul freighters? Uh, you know, where where's the generate the revenue generation aspect for the business? Yeah, for ship owners, it's about uh, owning assets that are either leased to operators and uh, you earn on the lease revenue, or if you operate themselves in the form of a, a charter or like a, a contract of a freightment, like a container ship, then you're earning revenue off that asset moving cargo, right? Whether it's passengers or containers or dry bulk or liquid fuels, you're transporting and earning revenue on. Um, so the way we think about it is as Switch Maritime is really as a ship owner, you know, we have investments in the fuel production as well. The technologies that we use are largely with other companies that are that are specialized in 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 that particular technology. I'll list a few that are involved with with this project. We have fuel cells that are owned by Cummins, which is a very large, you know, engine manufacturer for for a lot of industries, especially the shipping industry. We have uh hydrogen fuel tanks um, and, a, and a technology we use there from Hexagon. We have a uh, electric motor that's produced by BAE. And we worked with a hydrogen powertrain technology company called Zero Emissions Industries that uh, helped put all those together and sort of create the, the maritime application of those, of those technologies. So as an investor, as a ship owner, we are actually not developing the IP of those particular technologies. In fact, we're we're technology agnostic. So I actually would like to go into a project and know that I've got, whether it's Cummins or Wartzilla or GE or Caterpillar, I'd like all those to have fuel cell power packages or engine packages. And so as a ship owner, you want, you know, we, we want a lot of those companies to be able to produce uh, pieces of equipment that we can use so that it becomes more competitive and becomes more business as usual. We've developed sort of our own IP around how we put that together. I mean, it's a very complex puzzle, putting it all together for the first time. And not only the technology and the IP, but really around the permitting, you know, how do we get it to become sort of a known entity to the, to the U.S. Coast Guard, how they get comfortable with it, how they've uh, permitted that particular design and those, and those pieces of equipment and how we can apply that to a lot of other different uh, vessels and vessel types. So I think our future looks like working with a lot of different technologies and and applying those technologies to different vessel types. And so we'll own in the assets and own the first fleet of vessels that are able to do what diesel ships do, but just with no emissions. And, and that's one of the things that I love about doing this podcast is I continue to talk about how the energy transition, there's so much to it. Like we talked about earlier, you just don't look at one technology. Uh, 
but not only the evolving technologies, but a lot of the stuff that has to go on in the background. I mean, you talk about the permitting and, and then working with the Coast Guard. I mean, there's so many things that have to come together to achieve the end result. But what I like is hearing about all the stuff that is being done. So it, it's moving in that direction and all the things that have to be done to lay that groundwork on a lot of these initiatives are in fact being done. They're, they're time consuming, they're complex, but they are being done. And that's one of the things I like to hear about on this podcast is, wow, there's a lot of people involved, a lot of smart people involved in all this stuff and putting the blood, sweat, and tears behind it to achieve the end game. And so kind of continuing on the, the financing side, how did Switch get financed? I mean, how, how did you finance the sea change and, and how are you looking at your capitalization going forward? Yeah, the first of its kind project is always a uh, a home run swing, and you have to work with parties that are ready to to sort of take that sort of risk. So it started with uh, the the development of the technology really started with a grant from the California Air Resources Board, and uh, zero emissions industries started working off of uh, other uh, technologies and projects that they had already worked on previously to design this system that was going to be applied to the ferry. We then took it forward with some private equity, not a private equity fund, but mostly a family office that was involved in shipping and uh, had a, a strong interest in sort of the legacy of providing a proof point to the shipping industry that this zero emissions technology could work. And then uh, we started to work on commercializing the ship, which enabled us to get more traditional financing. So we worked with a bank to get a construction loan. KeyBank has been really, really supportive. We worked with them on, on other projects in some other businesses. And so they have a, a great relationship with our office and they helped us uh, put together a construction loan and a term loan for the ship, which is sort of more business as usual for, for how we build ships. And they, were part, they had a partner in that loan uh, from a state agency called NorCal FDC and California Infrastructure Bank. So there was a I'm going to li- you know, list a bunch of names, but there was, uh, there was a, a program called Climate Tech Finance, which enabled uh, a loan guarantee. And it really was probably one of the most important things to unlock the mainstream capital coming into the project, because um, it's very difficult for you know, your traditional banks to come in and say, yeah, we'll, we'll help you build something for the first time. Um, that's not how banks think. And so, you know, even though KeyBank was, you know, obviously very forward thinking and and believed in our in our management team uh, to be able to to execute and be successful. Um, it really helped to have uh, the the loan guarantee from the Climate Tech Finance Program. Um, I love that program because it really does sort of enable your your traditional mainstream capital to come into a project, and it's not just uh, venture capital because venture capital could, you know, is, is great for companies that are building. Um, rapidly scaling companies are, you know, 10 X's in the first few years. Uh, that's, that's sort of what venture capital loves. Um, and they're willing to take the risk, but they're the venture capital, just <clears throat> the DNA of, of VC is not necessarily uh, prone to look at, you know, long live core capital assets and, you know, very capital intensive projects. That's not, not typically what VC looks at, although there are more and more coming out that are, that are trying to help sort of fill that gap. Um, so yeah, so that first project uh, really took a lot of sort of piecing together 
um, whatever we could get, you know, we, whoever we could get uh, access to and, and get interested in the project. That's also because we started the project without a commercial outcome. So, you know, doing it on quote unquote spec in the shipping industry is a, is a risk, you know, a more risky endeavor and really sort of started as proof of, of the technology. As we go to number two, number two through 10 through 20, however many we can build, it's definitely going to be done more as business as usual. You know, we'll contract first, then we'll work with our, you know, work with shipyards that, that are building ships the, the way they normally would, um, sort of a not to exceed and EPC style uh, construction. And, and so you couldn't do that with this first one, um, but we'll certainly be doing that as we go forward. Yeah, getting over that first hurdle is always the biggest challenge. But you know, like you said, it it's easier to get the financing behind the construction when you have the the contract on the other end with a credit worthy counterparty. It's a lot easier from the underwriting standpoint. And you mentioned Key. Uh, I used to work at Key Bank uh, in their energy investment banking team for a while. A great group of people over there. Uh, terrific institution. Uh, so, from a regional standpoint. Where do you see this this kind of growing? I mean, outside of San Francisco, uh, what other areas have you identified where you think uh, the technology and the ferry could really be be beneficial? Yeah, I think there's probably a next version. We'll, we'll build some of this smaller st- uh, size ferry, which has a is a good fit for certain routes that require sh- smaller sizes. Typically in the U.S., you're seeing sort of 150 to 350 passenger sizes being more prevalent. So we'll start to look at a um, at a larger vessel size now that we we have the the permitting in place. The technology was never really the concern as much as as the getting the permitting in place. Now that the that sort of runway is paved for permitting, whether we build a 75 passenger, 150, or 350. Um, should be a lot easier now that we've got the technology sort of over that first hurdle. So we'll build some uh, larger ones. There's some amazing ferry markets, uh, you know, where waterway transportation is is part of the sort of critical transportation infrastructure. You know, I grew up in New York, so I definitely would love to see some of these get into New York City. And whether that's battery only or hydrogen, again, my mission is zero carbon. So I support, you know, these other other technologies. We'd be happy to participate and help put together uh, projects that are using something other than hydrogen, as long as it meets that criteria. Um, I believe that hydrogen is going to play a, a big role for some of these transportation markets, just because we've looked a lot at battery. It's a great fit for certain routes, but you're definitely limited uh, when it comes to getting certain distances or certain speeds because you have to, you know, if, if, if you're charging, you have to change your whole operational schedule to accommodate charging, or you have to build a lot of charging infrastructure on the shore that you don't have today. And that is difficult, not only expensive, but you have to get really large sort of grid, you know, utility grid connections, um, which are also have their own challenges. And so hydrogen really solves for that. It, it, you're able to fuel the ferry exactly the same way you fueled with diesel. You you either have a tank nearby or you have the truck pull up nearby and, and you're able to fuel the ferry in just a few hours, just like you would with diesel. So I think I speculate that a lot of ferry operators and you know cities that run 
large ferry systems are going to start to realize that uh, hydrogen is going to be a, a good fit. I think battery electric is going to play or is going to be really important. It's really the combination of two of hydrogen fuel cell and battery that makes that's really powerful. So I think New York, Boston, DC, you know, some markets in Florida, Puerto Rico, Seattle and Puget Sound, uh, Vancouver, those are really, really strong ferry markets. So you're already seeing a lot of these ferry operators making steps toward um, zero carbon assets. It's exciting. And it's just, just getting started. And you just mentioned, I mean, one of the kind of big questions uh, on the energy transition is is the, is the technology, right? And you you talked about battery versus hydrogen, and that was kind of going to be my next question is, is the coexistence of the two. Like we'd mentioned, you're not going to see one just evolve and take over everything, that there's there's going to be a place for, for both of them, but it will be very fascinating to see how all that evolves because, you know, what becomes better suited in, in what area uh, versus the other one better suited in another and just continuing to see the infrastructure, the technology, uh, the use case, all that develop uh, and which kind of solidifies itself as, as better as a better fit for a certain area. How far along do you think the maritime industry is in general? I mean, obviously, there's a lot going on with electric vehicles. Uh, we've started the discussion on aviation, whether it's uh, renewable aviation fuel or, or hydrogen-powered engines. And like I said, uh, there's been a less discussion around maritime, but I know that a lot's going on. You know, we talked about IMO. But where would you put that along the time scale of how how far along they are on making the changes necessary for the energy transition? The energy transition in shipping, or let me just say any transition in shipping, is going to be <laughs> potentially decades longer than than other industries that evolve a lot quicker. That's not to say that there aren't you know very smart people working on it. I've I I was new to the shipping industry. I came from finance and then the energy industry previously, and was new to shipping and didn't know much about it. But I've been very impressed with how many smart people there are working on working on solutions on the energy tr- transition technology integration, you know, autonomous shipping and safety at sea. And it's incredible. There's, there's a lot going on. So I think there's, it's not due to lack of, it's not really due to lack of the people that are focused on it, or even the money that's, that's being invested into the evolution of the industry. It really has to do with sort of the renewal rates, if you will, like how quickly things get rebuilt just because of that what I discussed uh, about how long these these assets last, you really only get to replace them once every you know 20, 30, 40, 50, sometimes you know there's ships in freshwater that operate for over 70 years. So the pace of replacement is a lot slower. And so I think the number of swings you get at okay, here let's 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 build another vessel that's that's going to be using this new technology and then it'll the industry sort of builds off of that, right? Uh, so it's definitely a momentum where you see a fleet change over and then all of a sudden the competitors of that fleet slowly have to change over or quickly have to change over just to stay you know relevant or uh, rel- you know relative to the to the lead so that sort of that sort of traction is just a little bit slower to take hold we've seen it with liquefied natural gas so the industry started to really with the first sulfur emissions regulations in 2012 
that's where you saw ships start to switch over from heavy fuel oil to ultra low sulfur diesel and then to liquefied natural gas. And so it was slow to start. And then all of a sudden, eight years later, now it's sort of become a mainstream fuel. And so I think we're looking at a decades long transition, but we'll start to see some real like material changeover within a decade is my speculation. I think by 2040, you know, call it, you know, 20 years from now or a little bit less, we'll start to see potentially getting into the majority of shipping using some sort of decarbonized technology. So what's, what's kind of not next for switch, you know, we've talked a little bit about what, where you guys are going, but if you were to kind of think about, you know, the future of switch, what would that be? My partners and I have enjoyed taking on challenges that um, others in the industry maybe aren't willing to take on. And so I just imagine that we will uh, find ourselves in that situation again. Let's see this take hold here with the ferries. And I, and I believe that's going to have a fun sort of uh, trajectory ahead. Also think there's, you know, we didn't start, start these initiatives and these companies to, to just build one ferry. We took on the, the challenge to really decarbonize the shipping. And so our sites are on larger, you know, what, what are the biggest users of fossil fuels? What are the, the biggest emitters? Needless to say, your your biggest ships are, you know, those massive container ships you see come, you know, come into port and that are moving the world's goods around. So there are a few projects out there that are looking on looking at taking on uh, those larger assets. And some of the leading companies actually are making some very impressive moves towards decarbonization. Everyone is familiar with the name Maersk because they'll see it you know, around their ports and on the highways. And uh, they're obviously the largest container shipping company. It's really fun to see them uh, make some really big moves in terms of ordering ships that are using decarbonized uh, propulsion technology. So they're focused uh, mostly on methanol and that's really exciting. So I, you know, I think that there's uh, you know, if I were to look, look ahead a few years and we can get some of the the challenges of the day behind us, especially as we are trying to survive the pandemic and everything with our projects. I've got my sights on some really large ships. So this technology, this type of technology scales to, you know, we could, we could go 10 times, 20 times the size of the power. And then, you know, it's always just, okay, so we've solved the power component of it. And we, we know we can, we can drive these ships with electric motors. I mean, diesel electric is actually a pretty normal thing in the shipping industry, or it's, at least it's pretty well proven. It's been around for a long time. So the shipping industry is not averse to electric motor. Um, it's really just how do you produce the electricity to, to drive that electric motor? And so do we take a diesel generator, really big diesel generator? I mean, like an engine the size of a house, and change that to a zero carbon electric generation, either with fuel cell or some other form. And uh, that's something that I think is is not that far away. That's that's really around the corner. Then there's just other. Okay, now we have to solve for another component, the storage. So if it's you know pure hydrogen, that's going to be very difficult. Do we have to look at other forms? Like I mentioned earlier, of course, the production of of these fuels as as a commodity that's as tradable and liquid as as diesel and, and heavy fuel oil. Um, that's that's going to be, you know, those are some really fun challenges ahead. So I, I expect we'll probably get involved in some really big projects. Yep, the trading market, uh, definitely, I agree. Uh, we'll be interesting to see how that all evolves uh, in line with these technologies. 
But listen, I, I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, it was a great discussion. I've still got family in San Francisco, so I hope at some point I'll be up there and having one of your ferries take me over to Yeah, to we'll get you Alcatraz. on board. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, no, I, I really enjoy the, the podcast. I listen to Interchange a lot. So thanks for having me on, David. Appreciate it.